Okay, so we're back into Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. We've been working through it uh, over the last well, a few months, I guess. And uh, we've been looking at Corinth as a city, uh, which you can see is the, the kind of Liverpool of the ancient world. I've, I've pinched one of Matt's slides from last week, to be honest. Um, both Liverpool and Corinth are famous trade cities, both famous for sport, both cities kind of in recovery and both cities with a, a really sort of multi-faith culture. Um, but what we've found going through the book so far is that the church in Corinth is going through some challenges, some issues. Thankfully, issue, thankfully issues that so far as our church, Freedom Church, we haven't had to go through yet. But nevertheless, there's some really, really important foundational lessons to learn from what Paul says to, to the church in Corinth. And what we've looked at is that the book is kind of split into five chunks, five essays. We're through the first section now. That really focused on some of the key arguments that were going on in Corinth, uh, looking at some divisions which had arisen around leadership, with people saying, I want to follow this leader, I want to follow that leader. Paul really writing to correct that. Um, and reminding them and really fighting for the fact that he'd founded that church on the foundation of Jesus, that he is the one to follow, not Paul, not Apollos, not anyone else. Uh, but last week, we moved into this second sort of chunk, second sort of essay. Um, and this section really directly tackles some issues of what Paul is really concerned about. Some issues of immoral practice, some issues which really demonstrated some unholiness and real sin that was rising up amongst the body and that Paul is really not pulling any punches on. So last week, um, Matt really focused on the issue of sexual immorality. This week, and next week, next week as well, Chris will be speaking on another, another whole section that really, really uh, digs deep on, on that issue around, around sexual immorality. In between the two, we've got what we're looking at today. Um, and that is really, it, it stems from partly what Matt was talking about last week. Last week, the section on sexual immorality kind of, kind of arose from this issue where Paula said, there's someone having an incestuous relationship in your church. There's someone here who is having an affair with his father's wife. And this section today looks at how the church hasn't handled that issue properly. And actually Paul is, is saying, listen, you need to understand how to deal with conflict in your church. The way you're going about things isn't right. So the, remember the challenge last week was about when someone is, is in that sort of sin and they're unrepentant, actually you need to cut them off. They need to be cut off from the church to, so that sin can be dealt with. And Paul's saying, actually, what's arising in your church is an issue where you're not dealing with things the right way. So that's the kind of context we're arriving at in chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. And really what Paul is saying is the unity of your church is being harmed by the way that you're acting against each other in conflict. And actually what we're looking at today is things are getting so bad that when conflict arises between Corinthians, they're actually taking each other to court rather than settling it within the church. So let's have a read of the passage, and then we'll look into uh, the key issues to learn from. So, if you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11, it's also on the screen. So, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? 
I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, pretty hard-hitting stuff, isn't it? What is the issue here then? We've got the issue that the Corinthians have seemingly developed a bad habit of when an argument arises between each other, they've taken each other to court to settle their differences rather than trying to resolve them internally. And to be honest, the issue that Paul is concerned with isn't so much the conflict itself. Conflict, it does happen between human beings. But it's the reaction and the handling of that conflict and the way that the Corinthians are going about it. And partly, this would have been a cultural issue. Greek culture was a culture which loved a debate and loved an argument and loved rhetoric. And actually, court cases, public court cases, were almost, almost like a spectator sport uh, for the ancient Greeks in Corinth. You know, they loved to see that public spectacle of two, two wise minds going against each other, arguing it out. Um, it was genuinely a, a kind of an, in, an interest, or almost a hobby for them. But Paul isn't happy with this for a whole number of reasons, and we'll have a look at that in a moment. Just to say that there's some people who have taken this passage, I think, to extremes, and have suggested that even serious issues, even criminal matters that arise within a church should be kept private and should be dealt with within the church and not outside by the relevant authorities. I want to say this up front, I don't believe that what's put, that's what Paul's saying here. He's very clear in verse 2 that what we're talking about here is, dis- uh, is trivial disputes, trivial cases. These are disputes and arguments. Likely there were things around financial or business matters, squabbles over money or property or status, things which really should be handled within the church and not in the legal system. We're not talking about serious crimes like murder and anything like that. It's fair to say that if these things fester and grow though, they can turn into these full-blown public disputes and fallings out and that's what's going on in the church. And some of you will be thinking, come on, what has this got to do with us? How often, in all honesty, are we going to see people within our church or any church taking each other to court over a trivial matter? How often does this actually happen in practice? What Does this really apply to us? Well, yeah, of course, the answer is pretty rarely, hopefully. We're not hopefully going to see anyone taking each other to court in our church. But the issue was, when these things got blown up and referred to court, the church, the church's dirty laundry was being aired in public. And we might not take each other to court in Freedom Church, hopefully not. But it's very possible that people will fall out and disagree. And there's really important points to learn 
in terms of Paul's perspective of handling conflict amongst the body of Christ, that we make sure that these minor trivial things which could arise in our church or in any group of Christians or any group of people, we don't want them to turn into these big, ugly public issues. And there's several reasons for that. So let's look at three things that we can learn from the Corinthian issue. My, my clicker seems to be stopped working, Tom. Can you... Uh, it is working now. Here we go. Three lessons about conflict management and why we need to avoid it. First, firstly, you've got to consider the effect that this sort of thing will have on non-believers. Secondly, actually we can look inside the church to solve these issues. And thirdly, we're taught to forgive like Jesus. So firstly, consider the effect on non-believers. I'm going to set out an imaginary scenario here. It is imaginary, just bear with me. If you need to close your eyes to imagine it, then by all means do that. It's, but it's not really that difficult that you need to close your eyes. I'm just going to run through a little role play and just think about, think about the effect here. So imagine that I have got a friend. I know that's difficult to imagine in the first place. A non-Christian friend doesn't know God. And I have been working on this guy for ages. His name, let's call him John, okay? Not you, John. Um, I've been trying to reach out to this guy for ages. I've told him all about my testimony. I've told him all about my life before I was a Christian. I've told him how accepting Jesus has changed my life. How I'm now full of the Holy Spirit. And how important it is to me to love God and to love other people. And finally, finally, I've plucked up the courage to ask John to come to church. And he said, yes, get in. He's coming to church. He's coming to Freedom Church to, to see what it's all about. And I've got it all planned out when he arrives. We walk through the doors. I'm going to get him this beautiful cup of tea or coffee. I'm going to get him a lovely biscuit. And I'm going to start introducing him to people and showing him this loving community. These wonderful people. I'm going to get introduced him to some great people so that he sees what, I'm, what I've been talking about. And I've worked out as he's walked through the door, I've worked out where Chris CB is sitting because I don't want him to meet Chris CB. Not yet. Chris has got those piercing eyes which just go right to the very soul and make you want to tell him all your deepest, darkest secrets. And John, I don't think John's ready for that yet, so I'm going to keep him away from Chris CB. But I'm looking around the room, I'm taking him around to introduce him to people, and I take him to meet Jack and, and get Jack to tell him some of his amazing stories about his life lived for God. And I take him to meet Squibs, and Squibs is such a welcoming hospital guy. What a great baker, and I make him feel really, really welcome. And I take him to meet Jim, and I tell him all about Jim's amazing gift for prayer. And I take him to meet Rachel and take him, tell him all about Rachel's amazing singing gift and worship leading gift. And I take him round to loads of different people. And this is going great. This is going absolutely great. And then it happens. My worst fear is realised because I accidentally bump into Anne and Dave. I didn't want John to meet Anne and Dave. I'm not speaking to Anne and Dave. And Dave and Anne don't want to speak to me either. In fact, we can barely bring ourselves to look at each other. To be honest, I'm pretty sure that Anne's been having to edit some of the signs that Dave's been making to me recently. <laughs> I didn't want this to happen. And so we ignore each other, we walk past each other and we get past it. But John's picked up on it. What was all that about, he asked. And I'm like, it's difficult to explain, John. But you see, Dave's a handyman. <laughs> and I got him to come round to my house to do some decorating and repairs. And the problem is, he didn't do a very good job. 
It's imaginary, it's imaginary. In fact, he's left a six-foot hole on my wall, and he cracked a window pane, so I'm not paying him. And frankly, he's now taking me to court. So we're not exactly on good terms. And then John says, but what about all that stuff you've told me about loving one another and being a great community and being brothers and sisters in Christ? I, I don't get it. How's this happened? And there, John has completely got me. It doesn't matter now how good an experience he has in Freedom Church that morning. It doesn't matter how great the preach is or how much he enjoys the worship or how much he enjoys that cup of tea. What do you think is the one thing that John is going to take away from him that morning? He's going to remember that the fact that two Christians have fallen out massively over something trivial and are fighting it out in the courts. Before I go any clearer, any further, let me be absolutely clear, that was entirely fictitious. <laughs> Dave is an utterly outstanding handyman who's done some brilliant work in my house. And you will not leave any holes or in your walls or crack any windows. But I will say the bit about Chris's eyes was spot on. Um, <laughs> Okay, John 13, Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Do you know what? How we interact with each other as Christians really matters. It's something that makes us distinct. God himself, we believe, exists in community as Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he has designed us to also live and worship in community. And that is something that sets us apart and makes us stand out. We are trying to demonstrate to the world that we are different. That how we interact with each other is such a hugely important advert to the world for a life lived with Jesus. And we need to send the right messages to each other. These are some examples of sending wrong messages, these signs. I've put, put them there because they're quite funny, there goes my Bible. Um, but actually, we're advertising almost to people who we are and, and our, our relationship with Jesus by the signs that we send out. And just to under, underline this point, I, um, I was at a kid's party yesterday for George and I was sat next to this fella um, and I just got chatting to him. It's football originally that got me chatting with him. Always seems to open up conversations, international language. Um, but I got chatting to him and talking about his kids. And he was telling me that um, he wants his kids to go to St. Margaret's High School, Church of England High School in Edgeworth. And he said, he said, to be honest, I really wanted to get in there, so I started going to church. And his wife's like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I was like, okay. I said, well, how are you finding? He said, he said, you know what? I've never been to church before. I just wasn't brought up that way. But what I've found has really surprised me. He said, I've, it's really interesting me at the moment. He said, there's something different about these people in church. He said, in the world, people seem to be out for themselves, and 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 it's it's making your own way and getting on as, as well as you can with your own life. But these guys seem to really love each other. These guys seem to be a really a real community and it's making me he said I'm actually going to do that they're putting on this six week course for people like me apparently um, and I'm going to go on it in, in, at Easter time and it's really he said it's really hit me it's really struck me and I was like that's exactly what should happen that is exactly what should happen that 
when you get when you get into a church and you meet a community of believers, it's different. We're different. We love each other. But what's going on in Corinth? Well, one brother is taking another to court in front of unbelievers. If we want to show that we are changed, that we're grace-filled, that in a world of war and conflict, that through grace, the God of people can live in peace and harmony and genuine love. That's what we want to show people. We're trying to be attractive and reflect the impact that the gospel has had on our lives. So when conflict arises, how we resolve it in the church can really tell people a huge amount about who we are and actually how genuine, how genuine our relationship with the God that we serve is. Because God is the very master of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And if we can't take that on board, if we are not changed by a relationship with that, that's a problem. And it's a really important point that, that comes out in verse 8, that you do this to your brothers and sisters. Do you know what? We are family. We're not just friends. We're family. It's exactly what we are. I don't know how many of you have siblings, how many of you grow up with brothers or sisters. I certainly did. I've got two sisters and a brother. And do you know what? There was quite a lot of conflict when I grew up with my brother, especially. Um, I used to share a room with my other brother. He's, he's five years older than me. And we got to that sort of awkward age when he was mid-teens and I was a sort of cheeky little nine or ten-year-old. He was maybe a little bit annoying at times. I'm sure you can't imagine that. But we used to share... <laughs> but we shared, we shared a bedroom and we used to absolutely do each other's heads in. We really did. And it got so bad that eventually mum and dad said, right, that's it. We're going to split this room in half. And they literally took all our furniture, wardrobes, chests of drawers, and just lined them up down the middle of the room. And then that was my half of the room, and that was his half of the room. That was the only way they could deal with this conflict, because before that it was bunk beds, and we were just annoying the heck out of each other. Um, even that, to be honest, didn't stop us. We just used to throw things over the barriers and, and try and hit each other while we were falling to sleep, all that sort of stuff. But there was a lot of tension, a lot of conflict. But you know what? It wasn't all that bad, you know? Because we were a family, and yeah, we'd fight, we'd argue, we'd row. But we'd always knew that we'd be sharing our next meal together and that we needed to sort it out and, and get on with being brothers. And you know, in a well-functioning family, there isn't really room for the conflict that's going on in the Corinthian church. There's not room for conflict that escalates and get out, gets out of control. In a family, we need to have short memories and big hearts to keep on forgiving our family members when they hurt us. And you know, in a family, you're able to do that because there's a, bond, there's a bond there, isn't there? We're bonded by blood with a love that can overcome adversity and trial. And that is equally true of us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are bonded by blood, by the blood of Jesus. And so the quality and the depth of our relationships should speak to the non-believer about the way in which we have been washed clean by the blood of our Saviour. And you know what? When we get that right, that's hugely attractive. People want to be part of that. People come in and see that and think, oh, there's something different about this. I want to be involved in that. So if we can deal with conflict and difference in a healthy way, as a family, with short memories, with mercy and grace, then we reveal something really beautiful about God to those people who don't know him yet. But if we show, like the Corinthians, an inability to deal with it, to let these things get out of hand, then we show that we're no different to the rest of the world. And that's not attractive. That's not going to get people to come back and, and see more of us. So that's the first point. The second point 
look inside the church for a solution. What Paul is obviously concerned about is the effect that public church conflict can have on the unbeliever. We know that. But he's not for a moment suggesting that we should just bury conflict, that it should be left unresolved, that, that you know, when two people fall out, let's just ignore it and push it to one side and, and not deal with the conflict. Quite the opposite, because conflict is a reality, and actually unresolved conflict can be really quite dangerous. But Paul's issue is that in running to the courts to settle disputes like this, and it really demonstrates a lack of awareness of the fact that God has given us gifts and wisdom to actually settle these things amongst us. And Paul, when we come to it in 1 Corinthians 12, talks at length about gifts. And the very first gift he mentions in 1 Corinthians 12 is the gift of a message of wisdom. And Paul's very clear here that you have, we have the tools amongst you to normally resolve these sort of things without a need to go externally. And he emphasizes that with real sarcasm in, in verse 5, verses 4 and 5. He says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible? Is it possible that there is nobody amongst you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Is that really possible? There's not one person amongst you who could have sorted this out without it coming to the court. It's a really stinging rebuke, isn't it? But actually, he's right. There's, there's no need. There shouldn't be any need in a body of believers to do this, to go externally, to, to air the dirty laundry, to, to let a little conflicting matter become this big, full-blown public spectacle. It's much more healthy, Paul argues, that to submit to someone in the church and allow them to help to resolve the conflict using the gift which the God of all creation has given them to do it. Someone who's going to look at that problem through God's eyes with a godly, grace-filled perspective. That's surely got to be much more healthy, hasn't it? And having access to those kinds of gifts, these godly gifts of wisdom, is another demonstration of the strength of a, of a Christian community, of a church community. It's one of the reasons that we're called to live this way. We don't have to go it alone. We're with brothers and sisters who can help us, who can support us, who can love us, who can guide us with the gifts that God has given us. And it, it can be painful at times when there's a conflict situation or a difficult situation to actually open up and ask someone for help. But it's also really rewarding. And it can help in so many contexts, whether whether it's a family issue or a marriage issue or a friendship issue. I know at times me and Debbie have had our struggles. Uh, there's times where um, actually we, we, we've been going through some tough stuff and we've, we've actually had to take ourselves and open up to someone else, someone who we, we knew had that little bit of wisdom and, and experience and, and, and godly insight and say, guys, can you help us here? We're, we're, we're not getting this sorted between ourselves. Can you give us some input, some prayer? And it's a painful process. But going to someone who's gifted by God you can handle that issue with delicacy and faith and prayer and godly perspectives. By far the best thing you could have done. It's a healthy, spirit-filled process. But instead of doing that, the Corinthians were placing their issues into the hands of non-believers. People who were relying on, on their own wisdom rather than God's. And to me, and to Paul especially, it just seems so foolish to do that. Why would you entrust these sort of problems to someone who's not on that same journey towards godliness? Who's not judging the matter with a godly perspective, but an earthly one? Didn't we cover 
in the first part of Corinthians that actually earthly wisdom is nowhere near even as wise as God's foolishness. Do you remember that? Even God's foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. So why would we go for earthly wisdom over God's wisdom? Later on in the passage, Paul uses really stark terms to remind the church of the gulf between them as a community of, of forgiven, justified believers and those who don't know God. And he does that in verses 9 to 11 where he reminds the church of a load of separate sins and wrongdoings. It's not an exhaustive list, but there's all kinds of, of immoral, sinful activities which Paul lists, Paul lists sorry, and which he's saying that these are, these are some indicators of immoral, ungodly people, immoral practice. And Paul reminds the you know, at one time you guys were guilty of this stuff. You were engaging in these sorts of sins. It was indicates the desperation of your situation before you accepted Jesus. But now, because you've accepted Jesus, you're free from that. You're free from it. These sins, they're not affecting you anymore. They shouldn't be. You're free, you're washed clean. You're justified and sanctified by the forgiveness that Jesus gives you, by the sacrifice he made. But you know, those people who haven't done that, those people who haven't accepted Jesus, some of them are still prone to this really sinful stuff. They're still doing these awful, wrongful things, these sinful things. So why would you go to them to try and settle your problems? Can't understand why you would do this. Why would you want to place yourself back under the authority of somebody who's still bound up in sin and wrongness and it isn't sanctified, it hasn't been, hasn't been forgiven by Jesus? It just seems a crazy thing to do. Just a really quick aside, in that list of sins that Paul mentions, one of the things he mentions is, is men who have sex with men, homosexual practice. And we haven't really covered that as a church yet. We haven't really looked at our, our sort of our biblical perspective on homosexuality. It will come, we will get there. But just to really quickly say, it's really interesting to me that in that list of sins that, do you know what, that, that sin is mentioned just as one sin among many others. Paul doesn't give it any special treatment. He doesn't set it out as being any worse or any less than any other sin. He sets it out as sinful, but he's not trumping it up to a massive issue that, that should be something divisive and something that sets us apart. It's listed alongside a whole load of other sins without any extra emphasis, not given its own category. And we want to treat homosexual practice as a church like we do any other issue of sin. With love and with grace and with healthy challenge, and actually also we need to recognize that the moment we make homosexuality and homosexual practice an issue of us versus them, of the church versus all this sinful stuff, we make a, I think we make, an error. we make an error. Because actually homosexuality and same-sex attraction can be an issue within the church as well, for many people. For many people. And we need to be sensitive when we go around, when we're talking about these sorts of things. So I just wanted to mention that as I said, we'll come to that in much more detail in the future. But if we make the mistake, even, even like the Corinthians are doing with their conflicts, if we make homosexuality an issue that is so much greater than actually the Bible talks about, then, then we run the risk of, of cutting off a whole load of people and really upsetting a whole load of people who, yes, we need to challenge it, we need to be, stand firm on our principles, but we also need to not marginalise. We also need to not make sure that we, 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 we get the emphasis wrong. I hope that makes sense. I just wanted to cover that because it is in the passage and it, it deserves a mention. But the message overall here is clear, that if we have accepted Christ, 
then we need to accept God's vision and God's best intention for us. And that is being part of the body of Christ in his church and acknowledging the structure and the leadership and the gifts within it to be able to handle these issues. And so if we find ourselves in conflict, no matter how petty or, or trivial it is, actually the church can be our first port of call for handling it. And if Christians fall out, and let's not be naive, we can, we will, we, we do. Actually, we should be able to solve that within us. We should be able to get that sorted using what God's given us. There are gifted, wise, godly men and women amongst us who we can look to for advice and guidance and counsel and prayer as soon as anything arises. And if we do that, they should stop it from getting out of hand like it was doing in Corinth. Okay, that's the second point. The third point then is all about forgiveness and, and actually the lesson here that to forgive like Jesus. And this one is probably the most important for me. Paul says in verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits amongst you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Paul suggests that the Corinthians letting these matters get to court means that it doesn't actually matter who wins or loses. Those involved have already lost. Why? Because they've missed the whole point of Jesus' example to them. We know in the Old Testament there was an emphasis and when it came to, to, sit, to wronging each other of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But do you remember Jesus turned that on its, on its head completely in the, in the Gospels. He said, turn the other cheek. If someone wronged you, turn the other cheek. When someone came to him and said, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? How many times? Is it seven times? I can, I can probably manage seven. Jesus says, hey, 70 times seven. There should be no limit to how many times you forgive. And Paul picks up on that by allowing bitterness and anger at another person to become a matter for the courts, the Corinthians have completely rejected the example that Jesus set, set for them. His example was forgiveness and grace. And that very forgiveness and grace is what has changed our lives, isn't it? Do you know what? When, when it comes to being wronged, when it comes to being hurt and on the end of injustice, Jesus has more to complain about than probably any person in the whole history of mankind. He was executed publicly despite a complete lack of sin or wrongdoing in his life. He was publicly tortured, humiliated in the most shameful way possible, in the most painful way. And why did that happen to him? Because people had wronged him. Jesus' death was him receiving all the punishment that all of mankind deserves for wronging God. And yet Jesus took it. Jesus deserved the natural places in the throne room of heaven. That's where he deserves to be. He had every right to remain there and to have nothing to do with us on earth. But the Bible tells us that he suspended that right. He laid aside his majesty. He didn't consider his position, his status in heaven to be something that he had to cling on to and grasp. He let it go and he came down to earth to be our forgiver and our rescuer despite the fact that what he was going to receive and what he also always would receive from humanity was rejection and sin and scorn. And yet, not even 50 years after Jesus has lived and died and risen again, the Corinthians were unable to forgive each other for even the most trivial of, of matters. And Paul sees that as a massive deal. 
do you know what? Unforgiveness is not a small matter. Because if it takes root and grabs hold of a person, it can spiral out of control and lead to all manner of problems. Paul is only too aware that division and unforgiveness unaddressed amongst the church can be a terminal cancer for a community of believers. Someone once described unforgiveness as a poison that you drink, hoping that the other person will die. A poison that you drink, hoping that the other person will die. You see the, the lack of sense in that? In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us of the unforgiving servant, the guy who goes to his master, begs him to be let off this debt that he owes to him. Begs him, will you please, I can't afford to pay this, please will you let me off? And the guy says, yes, of course, I'll let you off. You're off the hook, that you don't owe me that debt anymore. And then he goes straight outside, finds someone who owes him money, and refuses to, to forgive him his debt. And he's, his result of that is prison and torture. And actually, that is the result of forgiveness. It's, it's like a mental prison, a mental torture that we get ourselves into if we don't, if we hold on to it. And the impact on the church can be so serious when we see that take root and we see relationships deteriorate and ministries can crumble all through unforgiveness. And that's why Paul asked that stark question. Is it really worth all of this palaver? Do you really think there is anything to gain from this course of action? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather just take it and say, okay, you've hurt me, I'm going to let it go. Would you honestly rather go to court and risk permanently ruining a relationship than simply taking it on the chin and moving on? Would you not just rather take the hit and suck up the conflict and let the other person win if you have to, but move on with your life and move on in the freedom that God's given for you? Can you not be the bigger person? Can you not be the one who follows Jesus' example? You don't have to like it. You don't have to enjoy it. It's going to be hard. It is hard. But the outcome is better all around if we do it. And the outcome of forgiving will speak so much more of God's love to other people if you can just find it in your heart to forgive and get past this issue rather than going down this horrible route of court and public battles. Paul reminds him, nothing good is going to come from this, from you drawing this out into a court case. You may think you've won if the jury has decided in your favour, but your problems will have only just started because the problems that unforgiveness can cause can be irreparable. How we forgive each other, how we love each other, how we show mercy and grace to each other and to others outside of the church is an ongoing example of Jesus' love and forgiveness to us. It speaks so powerfully, so powerfully. And if we can't even replicate that in trivial matters, it leaves us open to the question, has Jesus really had an impact on our lives? Has he really changed us? Have we really understood the gospel that has saved us? Have we really learned from Jesus? So they're the three things I think we can take from that passage. And what do we take away from this? What, what do I want to sort of leave with us this morning? We've looked at the passage. We've seen that Paul is writing to address a specific issue that was tearing relationships apart in Corinthian 
in the Corinthian church. But that, that issue teaches us some really much wider truths about how we are to act between each other if we get into conflict with our fellow brother and sister. I just want to encourage us two things, two things as we close. Firstly, that whole issue of unforgiveness. We need to be on our guard with that, guys. We need to really closely guard our hearts and our minds to ensure that that doesn't creep in. And ask ourselves, are there people in our lives, whether within this church, whether outside of it, somewhere else in life, in our family, in, in any, anywhere else, that we've allowed to become the objects of unforgiveness in our hearts? Deep down, is there anyone where we're aware that we're drinking that poison of unforgiveness, hoping that it hurts the person that we're angry with? I know it's hard. But so often, when we get into that unforgiving spirit, the thing we just can't get past is that whoever it is is completely undeserving of our forgiveness. That might be a genuine feeling. That the person we're struggling to forgive, they don't deserve it. Why should I forgive them? They don't deserve my mercy and my grace. Why should I let them off the hook? Well, here's a good reason. Because no matter what any person may or may not have done to, un- to warrant our unforgiveness, it will pale into complete insignificance when we compare it to the sheer weight of sin that we have committed against our God. There is nothing that anyone could do to us which will be worse than the way we have offended God in our lives. The Bible tells us that we are all sinful, that we are all failing to meet God's targets, that we all deserve to be punished. And where would we be? Where would we be if Jesus, our Lord, looked at us and said, I want to forgive you, but, you know, it's just too hard. I can't get past it. I can't see past what you've done to me. I can't forgive you. And you know what? We deserve that. We deserve that by all rights. But that's not what Jesus does, is it? He looks at us with complete love. And he tells us that we are forgiven. That he has paid the price for our sin. Even the ones that we commit after we've told him that we love him. After we've committed our lives to him. We sit here today transformed by the power of forgiveness and the new life that it brings. And how powerful an act it is if we can transfer that to people in our own lives. If we can examine that unf- any unforgiveness in our hearts and let that go. That's the challenge I want to leave with us this morning. That's the first one. Examine our hearts. Be on our guard. Look out for those things. And try and remember just how much we've been forgiven and apply that. And the second thing I just want to leave with us and challenge us is that issue of, of looking at the gifts that other people have and, and look a little bit at accountability and discipleship. We've talked about the wisdom that is available to us, the, the way that God gifts people in wisdom. And that is a gift to us as a body. And we've been looking recently, we had that great talk from Matt recently on body ministry, and I know some people in their groups are really working through that and trying to encourage that and tease that out even more, which is fantastic. And I believe there are people amongst us with real roles to play in that whole area of godly wisdom and input. So I kind of encourage us in two things. Number one, if you are someone who you believe that you have that gift, that, a gift in that area of wisdom, that God has given you something where you're able to speak words of wisdom, words of knowledge into people's lives, <coughs> can I encourage us once again to step out with that? To step out with it and minister and, and, and serve the body of Christ with it. And you never know when that little nugget of wisdom that you, you might feel like God's put on your heart to say to someone, and it might seem silly to you. It might seem in, insignificant and unclear to you, but that might just be 
a life-changing key word to someone that gets them through a situation, that changes their heart or something. So I can encourage you, if you feel that, if you feel like, you know, I feel like God's given me some wisdom on this, share it, step out, use it. Because God can do great things with that. And secondly, all of us, I encourage us to seek out wisdom amongst the body of Christ and to reap its benefits. No matter how old we are, no matter what stage of life we're in, I suspect there is someone else within the body of this church who we could really benefit from spending time with and learning from. Accountability, discipleship are key facets of growing in God. And when we open ourselves up to people who are gifted and able to minister to us, and we allow God to work through them and minister to us, it's so productive and so helpful. So if there's an area in your life, particularly around this area of conflict that we looked at today, or any other area where you think, I just need another perspective on this, can I encourage you, seek out wisdom within the body. Seek out those people you think can help you on that. If you're not sure where to turn, come and speak to one of us on the leadership team. We can point you in the right direction. But we'd love for everyone's needs in these areas to be met within the body because God has given us what we need. There is the wisdom, there is the perspective, there is the godliness amongst us to, to work through these issues. Okay. Shall we stand? We'll finish in prayer.